Good morning. It's good to see you all. Good to be here. Uh, my name is Derek Reed, as, as they've said, pastor at Reformed Baptist Church of Louisville. Uh, our theme for the next couple days is following Christ worth the cost. So following Christ worth the cost. And as we begin, I want to challenge you all to really engage and to really think. And not just in these sessions. I do want you to engage and think here. But outside of these sessions, to think about these things, to consider what you're hearing as we open up the Word of God. So that's my challenge to you as, as, as we begin. I hope you have a lot of fun and that we have a good time with the activities. But I also hope that God will use this for your eternal good. That this will be something you look back on and say, the Lord spoke to me as the Word of God was open and as His Spirit was working in me. Now, I have some goals for the messages today and tomorrow. One is to help us understand what it means to follow Christ. So hopefully you'll have a better idea of what that means when I say following Christ. But also for us to consider the cost of following Christ. There is a cost. But to persuade you that following following him is worth the highest cost. And to encourage you to follow him now while you're still young, and to follow him all the days of your life. So those are some of my goals, some of my burdens that I bring as I come uh, to speak here with you. And some of you, I know by God's grace, are already following Christ. And my hope for you would be that you would follow him even more earnestly. And there are some of you here, I know as well, who are not following Christ. And my desire for you, my prayer for you, is that God would work in your life, that maybe this would even be a weekend where God would change your life and draw you to Christ and you would follow him for the first time. That you would be converted is the language we often use. That means turn, that God would turn you around, that he would so work in you that you would turn from sin and you would turn to God, that you would turn to Christ in faith. That's my desire for you. Now, this language of following Christ is language that Jesus himself uses. You should have read Mark 8 this morning and you would have seen that Jesus speaks of following him. Now, what do you typically think of when you think of following someone? Don't have to answer that necessarily, but you can if you want. What comes to mind when you think of following I think a lot of people nowadays think of following in a very shallow way. So on Instagram or something, you follow somebody. And typically that just means you're going to keep up with them. You're going to look at whatever they're posting, their content. You might like it. You might reply, whatever it might be. There's not really a deep commitment usually. A lot of times you might not even know the person you're following. But when Jesus says, follow me, he's talking about something entirely different. He's talking about devoting yourself to him. It's it's a commitment of the whole soul, body and soul, that we are committing ourselves to Christ. So he's talking about something far deeper than just we might think of when we hear following somebody. Jesus says, follow me. It's demanding. It's costly. It's not just even to know and like his teaching, and it's not even just to share his teaching, as good and necessary as those things are, but it's to commit yourself to Christ. That's what he's calling us to, a giving up of ourselves, body and soul, to him. And only Jesus Christ is worthy of that commitment. Nobody else 
is worthy of the sort of commitment and following that Christ calls all of us to. So I begin with the question, have you committed yourself to Christ? Are you following Christ? Really think about that. Sometimes I talk to young people. They've grown up in the church and they say, I don't know where I'm at. I believe these things are true, but I don't know where I'm at. And so I just want to ask you that at the beginning. Are you following Christ? Do you know that you are following Christ and you have committed yourself in loving, trusting obedience to Christ? And if you are following him, ask yourself, are you devoted? Are you fully devoted? And if you're not, if you're not here, I hope these words here of Christ as we open them up will be used. So in this first session, we're going to look at Mark 8, 27 to 34. I would encourage you to open if you have a copy of the scriptures. Uh, I do think there's some Bibles back there if you don't have one. Uh, I'm reading here out of the New King James Version. Mark 8, verses 27 to 34. What we're going to do in this first session is lay the foundation. In verse 34, we're going to get to the demanding call of Jesus to follow him, but we need to lay the foundation first. So that's this first session. There's some foundational work. I'm calling this message the central question. So let's begin Mark 8, verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. He's speaking of himself there. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Let's ask the Lord's help and blessing as we look at this text. Our God, we thank you that we can be here this morning. We thank you that in your kindness we are gathered together around your holy word. And we feel our need of your help and ask that you would help us, giving energy to us. We pray that you would help us to focus upon these things as Christ speaks in his word. We pray for the help of your spirit. Lord, shine light where there is darkness. Give us help, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever had a turning point in your life? A point in your life where... Things were never the same after that. Maybe it was some experience that you had, uh, whatever it might be. After that time, the course of your life had changed. Did that ever happen to you? A turning point in your life. I could tell you about several turning points in my life, and I will uh, when I share my testimony on Sunday. Uh, But I've had a number of turning points, and I could also tell you about the turning point in my life. Are there any guesses what the turning point in my life 
is. Yeah, when, I be, when the Lord saved me. And for any believer, that's the turning point. When the Lord converts you and turns you and saves you by his grace. Well, Mark's gospel begins with a turning point in the life of Jesus. Mark doesn't have a, a, a Christmas narrative, as we would call it. It starts with Jesus bursting on the scene of history as a man who's about 30 years old, who had grown up in a town called Nazareth in, in pretty much obscurity. So he comes on the scene, and that's how Mark begins up to this point, living a quiet life, but now leaving Nazareth and coming into the wilderness. You could see that in Mark 1. We're not going to turn there right now. It's a turning point in the life of Jesus. That was the point that he began his public ministry. And from then on, we see him, the preaching and the teaching and the miracles, all of these things. But it began with Jesus leaving Nazareth, going to the wilderness, being baptized by John, and then anointed by the Holy Spirit. And the Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then immediately he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, and for 40 days he's tempted there. All of those events were a turning point in his life, beginning his public ministry, which lasted about three years. Well, now as we come to this text, we're at another turning point in Jesus' life. Because his public ministry is winding down. It's coming to a close. And he is now setting his face toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city where the temple was. And Jesus is setting his face there. And he knows exactly what waits for him there. Jerusalem is where Jesus is going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. He's going to the cross. And he knows all of this. He knows it's the Father's will. He's determined to do it. So here he has begun to set his face toward Jerusalem. Imagine that, you knowing exactly what would await you in a certain place. He knows that he must suffer many things. He must die, all of this, and yet he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to his suffering and to his death. That's the point that we have come here. So the public ministry is being largely put aside, and he's focusing now with his 12 disciples, his inner circle, he's focusing with them to prepare them for his departure. They have a lot left to learn. Well, in our text here, Jesus asks what I'm calling the central question. It's the central question of Mark's gospel, and it's simply, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? That, that at the age of 30 went into the wilderness and began this remarkable public ministry. Peter responds with that great confession. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And then Jesus begins to teach his disciples what must soon take place. And these are, what, these are the things I want us to consider now. So it's the foundation, as I said, of verse 34. The central question is what we'll look at first. Who is Jesus and then we'll consider what he must do. So first, the central question, and this is coming from verses 27 on to verse 30. They've come to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus and his disciples. If you look at verse 27, you see that. 
Uh, this is a pagan land, an unbelieving land. It's probably 100 miles or so north of Jerusalem where Jesus is going to go. We read of nothing of great crowds gathering. If you read the Gospel of Mark or any of the Gospels, you'll read that often great crowds flocked to Jesus and he was preaching and teaching. Well, we don't read anything about that now as they're in Caesarea Philippi. So it seems that Jesus and his disciples are taking something of a retreat. And Jesus has some alone time with his disciples and he's going to press them. He's going to teach them now in private without the crowd thronging around them. The first lesson that he is going to teach his disciples, his students, his learners, that's what the word disciple means, a learner, a student. The first lesson is who he really is, his identity, his person, and what he must do. So he begins by asking the popular opinion. That's also in verse 27. What's the word on the street he's saying? He says to his disciples, as they're there walking on the road, he says to them, who do people say that I am? Who do men say that I am? What is the opinion of people? And they were in a good position to answer this because as Jesus was performing miracles and teaching, they would have been interacting with crowds and they would have heard people and all the things that they were saying about who is this Jesus? Because he taught like nobody else. He taught with an authority that people recognized. They said, this is something different. He was healing people, casting out demons. So people were saying, this Jesus, this Jesus, they're talking about who he is, and people had opinions. And Jesus says, well, what are people saying about me? They answered that question in verse 28. They answered John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So there's a consensus that he is not just a great man and a holy man of God, but that he's a prophet. So they say maybe he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. At this time, John the Baptist is dead. Maybe he's Elijah who got caught up in the whirlwind. Maybe this is a reappearance of Elijah or one of the other Old Testament prophets. That's pretty remarkable for people to say this about Jesus. Now, obviously, these opinions are wrong. They were wrong about Jesus, but it's worth thinking about these opinions. People People realize he was no ordinary man. He cannot be an ordinary man. So they're thinking, is he one of the prophets of old? Who is this man? Well, they were wrong. Even, even though remarkable, these were wrong. They fell miles short of who Jesus is. It's, he's not a reappearance of one of the Old Testament prophets. He is far greater. He's infinitely greater than the greatest Old Testament prophets. Prophets. He is a prophet, but he is far more. Those men were inspired men. They spoke by the Holy Spirit. When we read Elijah or any, anything in the scriptures, it's God speaking to us. Even though it might be Elijah or David who wrote it, they wrote by inspiration. But those were mere men who wrote those things. Jesus is no mere man. He's God's own son, God in the flesh. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ. So these people fell entirely short of who Jesus is. Now, Jesus asked a second question. That was the comfortable question. What are other people saying? That's comfortable for me to ask you. What do people say? What do your parents say? What's the answer you know to be right in the Bible? But Jesus asked the uncomfortable question. He turns it on them. He says, what do you say? 
My disciples, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? What conclusion have you come to about my identity? That's the question he now puts to them in verse 29. Who do you say that I am? That's the central question. Who is Jesus? And this whole book, this gospel of Mark, is trying to drive us to the right conclusion about who Jesus is. From the very beginning, you read chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It launches right into that. It's telling you right there, this is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And then you go on to chapter 4 where the disciples are in a boat and they're caught in this storm and Jesus stills the storm. He rebukes wind. He rebukes waves. And it's silent and it stops and they're afraid. And they ask, who can this be that even the winds listen to him? The storm calms when he says to stop and be still. Again, it's the central question. Who can this be? It's the creator of all of these things. And then at the very end, when Jesus is crucified, there is a Roman centurion who cries out, truly this man was the son of God. That's in Mark 15, 39. An unbeliever, but he was there witnessing Jesus, breathing his last saying, it is finished. And he says, this was the son of God. That's the central question then of Mark, woven throughout the whole gospel. So I want you to keep that in mind, but especially to ask that of yourself. Who is this Jesus? Because it's not enough to know what others say. It's not enough to know what I say. Not enough to know what your friends here say, what your chaperones say, what your parents say. It's not enough to know what other people say about Jesus. The question is, who do you say that Jesus is? I want to confront you with that at the very beginning. And I want you to really think about that. Who do you say that Jesus is? I'm sure you could give me the textbook answers, but who do you say that Jesus is? Some of you could probably stand up here and finish my sermon. But have you really considered who is Jesus to you? Who is he? So Mark writes to convince us of this, that we might answer as As Peter does, you are the Christ, Jesus. In Matthew 16, Matthew also records this event. He records a bit fuller statement of Jesus. You are the Christ, of Peter saying to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. God had revealed that to Peter. He knew who Jesus was, no mere man. Now, at this point, I really wrestled, how do I deal with this? I want to deal helpfully with who is Jesus and with this confession of Peter, you are the Christ, I could get into some technical things, but I'm not going to do that. It would be helpful to look at the names of Jesus, and you might want to do this at some point soon, to consider the various names of Jesus. Even his name, Jesus, is full of meaning. He was given that name because he would save his people from their sins. But the name Christ, the name Son of God, the name Son of Man, and so on, all of these names are full of meaning. We could spend the rest of this retreat looking at those various names, and I think that would be a good thing to do, but we're not going to do that. I'm not going to get into the weeds right now. What I want to do is just consider the heart of this confession that Peter makes. At the heart, he is saying, when he's saying, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one, that's what Christ or Messiah means, 
What he's saying is you are the one that God promised long ago. You are the fulfillment of all of the ancient promises that God made to his people to send a savior. That's at the heart of it. He's saying, you're not just a prophet. Yes, you're a great preacher and teacher. You're not just a great healer. You are the savior that we have been waiting for. You are the one and only savior, the only redeemer and deliverer of man. That's at the heart of what he is saying. So by all means, understand Study it. What does it mean by Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, son of man, all of these things. And I'll mention a little bit of it, but that's at the heart of what he's saying. You are the promised savior. Do you know where we find the first gospel promise in the scriptures? Gospel means good news. Many of you know that probably. It means good news. Where do we have the first good news in the scriptures announced to us? Anyone know? Genesis 1, well, it is good news that in the beginning God created, but after the fall. Yes, so there's a promise in Genesis 3. So we have creation in Genesis 1. Genesis 3, we have the fall. Man fell into sin. And almost right after that, God gives a promise. Why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning of the Bible? You might miss this if you're not reading carefully, but this is the first gospel promise. And it's just a tiny seed. It's like when you plant a seed in the ground and you wait and it sprouts up. It's like that. This this first gospel promise is a little seed. And as you read the scriptures and God's plan of salvation unfolds, it's going to grow up and become this tree. And you're going to see it grow and grow and grow until, of course, Christ himself comes onto the scene, and he goes to the cross, and he rises again and ascends. But here it's just a seed. Look at Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord is saying to the serpent who deceived them, the devil, says, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then this is the the promise. And I will put enmity between you, you the serpent, and the woman. I will put enmity, strife between you, and between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and her seed, the seed of the woman. In my translation, it's capitalized seed. And I think rightly so, because it ultimately is pointing to Christ. Seed means descendant. So he's saying God is promising a descendant of the woman. Someone who's going to come eventually after generation, generation, generation. There's going to be one, a descendant of this woman who shall bruise your head. Crush the head of the serpent and you shall bruise his heel. He'll be injured but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. You might just miss that if you're reading quickly, but that is a gospel promise. God is saying, I'm going to sin. There's going to be a deliverer, one to crush the head of the serpent, the ancient serpent, the devil, who deceived our first parents and tempted them into sin and rebellion against God. God is saying, I'm sending someone and he will be 
a man, and yet no mere man, for he is truly and fully God, and he will crush the head of the serpent. So there you have it. Peter is saying, I'm not saying he had this in mind, but what Peter is essentially confessing is, you are the one promised all the way back in Genesis 3. And you can look at all the various promises of the Old Testament. He's saying, you are the fulfillment of these promises. You're the Savior that we have been waiting for, the only Savior of sinners. So who is Jesus? That's the central question. And now is the time to wrestle with that question. Really wrestle with that question. Think about these things carefully and prayerfully. What does the Bible say about him? He is fully and truly man and yet fully and truly God. He is the one mediator between God and man to make man right with God, that we might have peace with God. There's no other mediator. He alone is the Savior. He is the Redeemer of sinners. And on and on we could go. But what do you say? What do you say about Jesus? Who is Jesus? The central question. But I want us secondly to consider what Jesus must do. Because immediately when he deals with this question of who he is and Peter makes this great confession, he immediately begins to teach them what he must do. So let's look at that, what Jesus must do. So if we were looking at what we call his person and asking who is he, now we're looking at his work, his redeeming work. And that language of redemption is purchase. He's going to purchase a people and the cost will be his own blood. He's going to set them free. But what he must do now, he gives this grim prediction, but it is a glorious prediction about the Son of Man. The Son of Man. That is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. When Jesus wanted to talk about himself, he often referred to himself as the Son of Man. Not the Son of God, not the Christ, but the Son of Man. And he did that, of course, for a very good reason. This was the way he liked to speak of himself. And as with the name Christ, we're going to pass over many details that we could look into about this rich name of Jesus, the Son of Man. I do want to clear up one misconception about it, though. Because you might think, okay, Jesus is Son of God and Son of Man. And I also know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully and truly God, and he's fully and truly man. 100% God, 100% man. It's not 50-50. So we say he's son of God, son of man. So we tend to think son of God, that's emphasizing his deity, his divinity, that he's God. So son of man must be emphasizing that he's a man. Well, that's not exactly right. If you study it out, the term son of man is an exalted title that points to the fact that he is God. So that's what, it's, it is an exalted title. And I'll just mention this. It comes from Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has these visions and he has a vision of one like the son of man. So Jesus is saying, I'm that one that Daniel had a vision of. One like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Listen to these words carefully from Daniel 7. This is descriptive of Jesus. Then to him... To God, the Ancient of Day, or to the Son of Man, as he comes to the Ancient of Days, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. To the Son of Man. Dominion, glory, and a kingdom. He's a king, a glorious king. So that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So you see what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I, it's a somewhat veiled way to do it, but he's saying in calling himself the son of man, I'm that one that Daniel spoke of. The eternal king who will rule over all peoples and nations. So this is clearly speaking of Jesus' divinity, that he is God, the eternal king of all creation. Now just think about this. What would you expect an exalted person like this to do? The son of man, this, this son of man, the king, the king over all. What would you expect him to say, I must do? You know, Queen Elizabeth just died. What would, when you think of someone like Queen Elizabeth, what would you expect her to do? Now, this is what I must do. She's going to be served. Well, we might expect the same thing. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, what would you expect to come after that? He must be highly exalted. He must be served. Those things would be very natural. That will come. But first, there is a humiliation, a lowering of himself. Jesus says, first, I must suffer many things. The Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, think about it. He says, I must suffer many things. So look at the text. We're back in Mark 8, verse 31. Peter says, you are the Christ. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's himself, must suffer many things. He must suffer many things. He knew he must suffer many things. Think about the suffering of Christ. In the garden, sweating, praying, deeply distressed, Christ mocked, spit upon, beaten, scourged, which would have left his back a bloody mess. It was brutal. Christ must suffer many things and be rejected, as he'll go on to say. Suffering many things. I was even thinking about this. Somebody was preaching on this. Jesus saying from the cross, I thirst. Have you ever been thirsty? Like really thirsty. Jesus utterly dehydrated. Losing all of that blood and sweat. He's on the cross. I thirst. That's part of his many things that he must suffer. I must suffer many things. He goes on to say, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. He's talking about the Jewish religious authorities in Jerusalem. He's saying, they're going to reject me. God has been telling them for thousands of years that I'm coming the Messiah, but I know that they're going to reject me. They don't want to hear me. They're going to reject me. And they're going to send me to the Romans because they won't be able to kill me, but they want to kill me. They're going to send me to the Romans so that they can crucify me. He doesn't say that yet right here. But he says, they're going to reject me. And then he says, and then I will be killed. That's the grim part. That's all grim. But then he does say, and after three days, rise again. He's going to rise from the grave. So this is this prediction that Jesus gives. I want us to look at this a little more carefully. 
Notice first Jesus says he began. Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach them. He began to teach them. This is a turning point in his instruction too. A new course of instruction. Like I said, he's focusing on teaching these disciples, his his band of 12 followers, about what's going to happen. This is going to shock them. And they're going to stumble when this happens. But he wants to prepare them. He began to teach them. This wasn't just a one-time thing. He's going to teach them what must happen to him. It's even more clear when we look at Matthew because Matthew, there's the great confession of Peter, you are the Christ, and then we read in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, after Peter's confession, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and so on. So this was a turning point. All right, you've confessed me as the Christ, let me now tell you what I have to do. Because they didn't understand. They didn't know. In fact, look at verse 30. It's odd. Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. You read that and say, wait a second. I thought I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus. You are. But right now, they did not know what it meant that Jesus was the Christ. They had, they had misconceptions. They thought maybe he was going to be some political ruler, a king that would deliver them from Roman rule. Jesus first needed them to understand, no, I have to suffer and die. They're not going to understand that. We'll see that in Peter's reaction too. So he started to teach them. It's a new course of instruction over and over and over, not just one time. They needed to hear it again and again. Patient instruction. Jesus saying, this is what must happen to me. I'm going to suffer. I have to suffer. It must happen. Happen. So he's teaching them. And you'll see in chapter 9 of Mark, if you continue reading in Mark, another prediction of his death and, rection, death and resurrection. If you come to chapter 10, there is again another prediction of his death and resurrection. So he's going to, to start telling them more clearly what will happen of him. It's not that he's never said it, but now he's speaking openly as we have in our text in verse 32. He said this word openly, clearly, plainly, without any, it's just no beating around the bush. He's saying, looking in their eyes, I must suffer. This is what has to happen to me. These were hard truths, hard truths for them. Now, I do want to ask this question. How did Jesus go about teaching them? Any thoughts? What, what, what did Jesus do to teach them? How did he go about that? that? To show them that he must suffer. Let me tell you what he did. Primarily, he was taking them to the scriptures and showing them. They, they, their Bible at the time, the scripture, was the Old Testament. That's what they had. That's the revelation they had. He was taking them to the Old Testament and saying, here, here, and here, it is written of me that I must suffer. These things must happen. I must be rejected and so on. He began to, note the language, teach them. He began to teach them, not just say to them. It's not that he's not just announcing this, but he's teaching them. Matthew says he began to show them. That's a different verb, which means he's, he's using reasoning and evidence to show them here, here, here. Look at this text in the Old Testament. Go back to Genesis 3. Of course, they didn't have chapter divisions then, but Jesus would have said that promise back in the garden about the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. He's teaching them. He's saying, that is fulfilled in me. 
He shall bruise, my, my heel shall be bruised. I'm going to suffer. So does that make sense? Jesus is teaching them. He's showing them what must happen. He's going to the scriptures and he's showing them. And th- there's an important lesson here because the Old Testament is full of Christ. It's full of Christ. There can be this misconception that Christ is in the New Testament, but he's not in the Old Testament. But when Jesus himself wanted to tell people about himself and what he must do, he went back to the scriptures and he showed them over and over all of these things in all of the scriptures. He was able to show them things that were about him. The Old Testament at its center is about Christ, whom God was sending to save his people from their sins. So don't fall into the trap of just reading the New Testament. You need to know the Old Testament and all of it. It's all God's word. I realize some of it's harder to get through, but so let me challenge you. If you're just, it's wonderful to read things in the New Testament that are so clear because it's not just that seed like I mentioned. It's the tree in full bloom and you see it in all of its clarity. And we're so blessed to have that clear revelation of God's plan of salvation. But go to the Old Testament. It's the foundation. And Christ, Christ is there in the Old Testament. But read the Old Testament with the lens of the New Testament. Don't read the Old Testament as if the New Testament has not been given to us by God. Now, look at this next. We saw Jesus began to teach them and he was teaching them from the scriptures, but then he speaks about what must happen. There's necessity here. We could, we could say Jesus began to say, it's necessary for me to suffer and to be rejected and to die. There's necessity. Why? That's the question I want to ask now. So let's think. Why must Jesus suffer and be rejected and die and rise again? Why does he speak of necessity? Let me just mention a few things. First of all, it's written, like I just said. God wrote it in his word. He said these things must happen. If God has said something must happen, it must happen. God has said his son must Come into this world and suffer many things. So it must happen. So Jesus knows if scripture is going to be fulfilled and it will be fulfilled because God is faithful to all of his promises, then it must happen. Do any texts come to mind besides Genesis 3 that are really clear in the Old Testament about the suffering of Christ? I mean, you would think that you're just at the foot of the cross almost reading this. Isaiah 53? You were going to say that. Good. Isaiah, so much in Isaiah, you're just amazed. God is revealing this to him. Listen to these words, Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant of the Lord. That's Christ. But this was written roughly 700 years before the birth of Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Isaiah 53. It was written... God's word can't fail. Jesus says, I must suffer many things. I must be wounded. I must be bruised. Not for my sins, but Jesus says, for the iniquity of others. Secondly, Christ must suffer, be rejected and killed and rise again because he has a mission that can't be completed without it. God has sent him. The Father has sent the Son into the world on a mission 
to redeem sinners, to save sinners, to set them free from their bondage by paying a price. And no price short of his own life would actually be enough to set sinners free from their bondage to sin. So he has a mission. Just like if I were to look at you and say, hey, I need you to do this. You need to do this. Complete it. And this is what has to happen in order to complete your mission for which I've sent you. You're going to say, I, got, I have to do this. Jesus has a mission. And if it's going to be completed, he must suffer, die, rise again. All of these things. So there's another reason why he must do these things. Jesus was about his father's business. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And that's something just to step back and praise God and just be in wonder of Christ who is going to do the Father's will all the way to the bitter end, which was his own death on the cross. And not just the pain and the agony of that, which is unimaginable, but the fact that he's going to bear the wrath of God for sins he did not commit. He was so committed and determined to do his father's will. He said, it's my food and drink, essentially. I'm paraphrasing, but he told his disciples, it is my food and drink to do my father's will. That's why I'm here. I must do these things. Nobody's going to persuade me. Peter tried to persuade him. Jesus, spare yourself. That's what we see here. Go ahead and look at it, actually. Spoke the word openly. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. When we read in Matthew 16, we read there that Peter is saying, far be it from you, Jesus, that this should happen. You suffer, die, be rejected. No, he's saying it's just inconceivable. But Jesus is saying it must happen. The devil tried to persuade Jesus too, tempting him and saying, hey, Jesus, seek glory, seek the crown without the suffering in the cross. But Jesus wouldn't be persuaded. He says, I must be about my father's business. He sent me into this world with a mission to save sinners. So therefore, I must suffer many things, be rejected, and I must die. So it's written that these must, things must take place. So therefore, they must. God has given this mission to his son and he must complete it. He must be obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, as we read in Philippians 2.8. And then here's a third reason why Jesus says, I must, I must. Third, we look at this necessity from the perspective of our need. All of these things were necessary to secure our salvation. Because we are so needy. And if you don't understand sin and how it's an offense against God, and even one sin that we might consider small would be enough to make you not just guilty, but condemned in God's sight deserving of death and of his wrath and curse forever. If you don't understand that, then you'll say, this is extreme. Why did this need to happen? Why did God's own son have to suffer many things and die? But because of our need, of our condition as sinners, all of these things are necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to go through all of this. There's no other way to save sinners but for Jesus to go to the cross and to be wounded for their transgressions, to breathe his last, to be in a tomb, and then to rise, to rise victorious. To have those sins placed on him, paid for in full on the cross, 
as it were, taken to the tomb with Him and then Him rising without them so that we can have life and salvation through Him and in Him and peace with God. All of this is necessary. There needed to be a Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said. He said, you see Jesus? There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Read about all those Old Testament sacrifices. They all point to Jesus of a lamb, capital L, who would shed his own blood and be a substitution. That means standing in our place, taking the penalty we deserve. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of this was necessary to save us. What about the resurrection though? We might say, oh, of course it was necessary that he must die on the cross. But if there's no resurrection, then what we're doing here this morning doesn't matter. That's what Paul says. He says, it's it's futile. Your faith is empty. You're wasting your time. And and if Christ is still dead, then he's not Lord. He's not Savior. He's not who he said he was. But he's risen from the dead. And therefore, there is hope for needy sinners. There's hope for each one of you, for me, for all of us, that we can be right with God and have life because of the resurrection. So the must here is also the resurrection. He must die again. Or sorry, he must rise again after dying. Because if he didn't, no hope. So he began to teach his disciples these things. Peter didn't like it. Took him aside. Had a little chat with Jesus. Rebuked him. And Jesus turned right around and rebuked him. Turned around, he first looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter. Saying, get behind me, Satan. Peter was just way up here. You were the Christ. And now he's rebuking Jesus because he doesn't understand. In his mind, Jesus, you're the Christ and you're saying you must suffer? It just, he's like, it doesn't make sense to me. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That's key. And we're ending with that thought. Jesus says, you are not mindful, Peter, of the things of God, but the things of men. So Peter had his mind on the things of man, and that's why he couldn't understand this. And that's why he's saying, Jesus, spare yourself. But Jesus had his mind firmly fixed on the things of God, the will of the Father, the mission that he had been given by the Father. And he says, these things have to happen. These things must take place. What if Jesus had listened to Peter? Just think about that. Peter saying, don't do it. Spare yourself. There's another way. If Jesus had listened to Peter, there would again be no hope for us. If Jesus had spared himself, there would be no salvation. No way for any of us to be right with God. No way for us to have everlasting life. No hope. So we... Praise God that Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. I've got my face set like a flint toward Jerusalem. I'm going to that cross. I'm going to finish my work. I'm going to save sinners. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And his own son did not spare himself, but went to the cross. He was obedient to the point of death for sinners, that sinners might be saved. 
that the wrath of God might be removed from us, that we might, again, be one with God, have peace with God. So we praise God. It's this Jesus who says, come follow me. And that's why I say this is the foundation. As we come in this next session to look at that demanding call, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, it's this Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and the one that said, I must, I must finish the work the Father gave me. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these moments to spend in your word. Thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you that you so love the world that you gave your only Son, and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for all of the promises in the Old Testament. And we thank you that they're all fulfilled in Christ. Lord, give us understanding. Pray for each one here. Lord, we ask that every heart would be opened as the seed is scattered now and as it continues to be scattered. The seed of your word, we pray that the enemy would not pluck it up, but we pray that hearts would be prepared to receive it. Lord, we thank you that there is a way of salvation that we can consider these most wonderful and glorious truths that we can be right with you, that we can even call you our Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.